So my question is, um, I'm afraid. We're talking about fear. In Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. Um, I'm not looking to be made unafraid. I just like some clarity as far as what that applies to um, and how does it impact our walk. Would you read it out loud one more time? Yes. Yes. So the scary verse is uh, Hebrews 10, 26. Um, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. So, I'm a, I'm a sinner, and I sin, and I repeat sinning. And I'm afraid, how do I reconcile that with forgiveness of my sins, past, present, and future? I thought I'd lob a softball out there for the first one. <laughs> Jerry? <laughs> you guys have no idea how ugly it is behind the scenes. They just abuse me. It's just terrible. Um... Dave, there is, a, there is a real but invisible line between a man. You've got two guys who profess Christ, both sinners. Both have committed willful sin. There's a line between, on the one hand, the guy who goes to hell, and on the other hand, the guy who goes to heaven but has no reward. He gets into heaven smelling the smoke. That line is real, but it is invisible, known only to God. So as followers of Christ, your objective is to stay as far away from that line as possible. You walk by faith. You can never be certain of salvation. You have assurance of salvation, and the measure of that assurance is your obedience. God knows that we are wretched sinners. And um, he lets the line of demarcation be blurred. Because if it was too clear, we'd go right up against it. And because it's blurred, the wise man will stay as far away from it as he can. Because once you cross, and, you, and the danger, gentlemen, it is, is not visible to us when we cross. And the way we test ourselves is whether we are living in obedience, whether we're in a continual state of humility before God, rejoicing in our salvation, but knowing that we can fool ourselves. There's a series of five or so warnings in Hebrews, and they sequentially, consecutively get worse as they come. This is warning number four, Hebrews 10, 26. So it's one of the bad ones. I think the key word is willfully. And so I ask myself, what sin do I do accidentally? Not too many. 
So that's a problem, sinning woefully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I presume the truth is what sin did to Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. It killed him. And then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So I tried, my first instinct is to try to get out of the bad parts of this verse, see if there's any holes in it that I can sneak through. And one might be sacrifice for sins, plural, versus sin, singular. I think Christ died for our sin, singular, in terms of our principle of sin. And then on top of that, there's degrees of penalty for sins, plural. So eternity is not going to be the same for everyone, whether you go to heaven or hell. So because of our sins, plural, our record, our rap sheet, so those, it's, we're advisable, it's advisable for all of us to cut down on our sin quotient before we get to eternity because since plural, all the behavior stuff does matter to the quality of our eternity, although Christ and his death made a difference between whether we go to heaven or hell, which is the matter of our sin, singular, it does matter about how much our piled up sins, plural, gets piled up. And so uh, what it's a warning against willful sin. And, uh, and especially post knowing the difference. So it's better, unfortunately, for you men that you did not come to this conference. It's better that we never ask this question. Because now you're hung with the, the accountability of knowing. <coughs> Knowing better, so typical God being Jewish, I guess he he keeps track of all these little minutia details. Uh, was your sin purposeful? Was it accidental? Was it willful? Did you know better before the conference? After the conference? What about what your parents told you? It all matters. It's a very Jewish accounting. Anyway, I'm just rambling. I'd like to give you a quick illustration to put it into real terms. A high school friend of my wife comes to Christ. She asked Dana to disciple her. She is single. She wants a godly husband. And she said, a woman, in, an older woman on our church, one of the pillars of the church, told me uh, that if I want to have a husband, I'm going to have to have sex with him before marriage. Is that right? And, she, and the woman said, well, don't worry, just have sex, and then afterwards, you what? Ask for forgiveness. Gentlemen, that is, that is a lie. It is willful. It is horrible. And you have to ask, that woman does not know Christ.
it's interesting that Dave started here, and not surprising because the way God works, but um, I didn't participate in communion last night because I felt to do so would be fraudulent because I feel like my life has drifted too far away from where I could sit at that table. And I really appreciate what, uh, what I believe John had said is that are you, are you, are you toasting or, or participating to your salvation or to your, your judgment? And uh, they, they're, in fact, they're still in my pocket, the uh, elements from last night. And that, that was a tough moment for me. And I just ask, uh, you know, men that maybe have been through this, and I know Lee and I have had a conversation like this in the past, um, how do you, what, what's the best way to keep yourself from finding yourself here again? And, and I, I mean, that, what, what we just talked about is even more terrifying than my decision last night. So uh, uh, clearly I need help, uh, and I'm, I pray about this a lot, and I, whether it's my lifestyle or the choices I make or the people I choose to spend time with, I, I, I'm sure it's a combination of all of those things, but I'm uh, certainly tired of being here and uh, would like some, uh, perhaps, as opposed, in addition to the three days of wisdom I've been given, um, if maybe there's uh, some comments that uh, someone might be willing to offer. Oh, man. Um... Well, again, you bring up something like that, and then you think in your mind, well, give me a week to think about it, and then we'll need about five hours to go through it. Um, but I would just say in a nutshell, I hope that was being communicated in how I can, that I was thinking about what do you seek? Really doing a critical of a, you know, that's interesting in Second Corinthians 13, 5. <coughs> Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not know this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? So I don't think we really do well at examining ourselves, testing ourselves. I think we stay on a kind of a superficial level because we have a hunch what that's going to look like if we go much below that. But I believe that that's what his intent was God knew the God knows the answer to all those questions he's asking you. The question to ask is why is he asking you that aside from some obvious response that you see him give to whoever he asked the question in the Bible. And and if you really begin to think hard about what do you seek? I mean we mentioned that part from from Walt's devotional where if you're if you're not seeking God and you were trying to determine his will I'm going to assure you you're coming with preconceived notions of what that should look like. And so the significance is that if we, if we learn from examining ourselves what seeking looks like, I think it's going to be a lot easier for you. And that, by the way, that's why that's so critical, both in, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 10, that we're, we're given the warning to examine yourself. And see, in fact, examine yourself relationship, you know, because it's debated. Does he mean one body or does he mean the whole body? Well, we, we don't just, I'm not, I don't want to be critical. This is a general statement, but I don't think we think well as much as we should because we've cluttered ourselves. And if you go back to the old dead guys, they didn't have all that clutter. So they just thought about it better. 
And I think it related to what Winston was saying about prayer. You know, is prayer mostly what we're saying or what we're waiting to hear God say? Scott, I, I don't know whether you have this in your life. Do you have accountability in your life? I would find somebody that if they knew the truth about you, you would be just embarrassed to the core. Find that person and become accountable to them. And, it, and make it your aim to be honest and truthful with them every time. I had been a Christian about uh, seven years, and I wanted a divorce. I had no biblical basis for a divorce. I had not committed adultery physically. And I, I, two things happened. One is I knew that my brothers in Christ would confront me and rebuke me and hold me accountable if they knew. And I was so afraid of losing Christian fellowship because I loved the fellowship of the brothers. I loved it. I fell down on my face before God and pleaded for help. God, I am helpless. Please help me. And he gave me Proverbs 5, 16 through 18. This is for me as a husband. Basically, love your wife, rejoice in the wife of your youth, treat her as a loving kind, as a pleasant doe, and let her breast satisfy you at all times. But the, the point is that God knew what I needed. He gave me a verse, and I committed those verses to heart, and I would pray them over and over and over again until God flooded my heart with a deep love for my wife. That was over 40 years ago. So I plead with you to have a prayer life. I plead with you to be in accountability with brothers. And I plead with you to fear hell. I think one of the, uh, I think where the, the, the battle is won or lost in our thought life. Because uh, the will controls the mind. And uh, you cannot necessarily control some of the things that come into your mind or come onto the screen of your mind. But the, the one thing we do have control of is what stays on that screen. And so that's where scripture memory is absolutely essential. And uh, I'll give you, if you want to write these down, I'll give you a couple that I use that have been very, very helpful. Second Corinthians five, three, four, five. We do not, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculation, imaginations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, 
and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I've got that to where it's like my phone number. And so anytime an unwanted thought comes in, and some of them may be amoral, but they may be distractions from... And what I do, I just substitute that thought for whatever is on the screen of my mind, and I get relief. And sometimes the enemy is pretty strong because the enemy brings those thoughts. And sometimes I'll have to say that. Sometimes I just run it through my mind, and sometimes I'll have to say it out loud before I can get it nudged off of my mind. But that is, that is where, um, that's where the battle's won and lost, right there. <clears throat> the other one that I use, and there's plenty of them to use, is I use Philippians 8 and 9. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 4, 8 and 9. I'm sorry. And those are my two main ones. And then you'll, you'll have some others. When God really gives you a verse, you know, I call them aha moments. You're reading and all of a sudden, and you, you stop and you, wow, you ponder that. See, that's a word from God. Well, take ownership of it. And the key to memorizing scripture is review. If you don't review it, it'll kind of slip on you. But just go over it and over it and over it, particularly those verses you're going to use, you're going to use to combat the thinking. Yeah. And let me, let me just throw one more out for you, two more. One is, and I find with a lot of men, and I'm not excluding myself, that they've maybe had a history of... Uh, pornography or, or just infidelity or, or just whatever. And uh, you come to Christ, and we know that if we've come to Christ, he's forgiven us. But, uh, and then as, as a Christian, we know that if we come with a broken and a contrite spirit, He'll forgive us if we'll confess it. 1 John 1 9. If you haven't memorized that one, you need to memorize it. And we all know that. But he says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And so I find a lot of guys, a lot of guys say that, believe it, but then they still carry guilt. And don't let the enemy do that for you. If you've truly repented with a broken and broken heart, then, then you have no basis for guilt. And guilt is a wonderful, wonderful motivator for repentance. But it's destructive after repentance. I think we ought to park here for just a little bit because this is such an important issue. 
Finish this verse for me. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. There is the battleground. And so like Winston, I have my verses that I repeat. Every day when I lie down to bed and every morning when I wake up, for me it's Psalm 40 verses 1 through 3. It's Hebrews 1 verses 4 and 5. It's Psalm 37 verses 3 through 5. I just repeat these things. Thought comes from the flesh, which is that part of us that is at enmity with God. It comes from culture. We're inundated with ungodly images and thoughts all around us. And the third from Satan. Satan is the least because he's not omnipresent. But our culture is, in a sense. We're, we're in the culture. And the flesh, we're in the flesh. It's in us, I should say. So as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You absolutely must grab hold of some verses, even if you don't believe them at first. I memorize them, and then I meditate on them. What does that actually mean? And I find that gradually they take hold and they take root. And I pray every day, every day, Lord, cause thy word to dwell in me richly and produce 100-fold. And I say, pray every day, Lord, cause me to witness, experience, and manifest your glory. Guys, take control of your thought life and stay away from those things, those influences that seek to dominate your thought and pull it away from Christ. Uh, gentlemen, I have a uh, question, um, primarily for Mr. Hartshorn. Uh, you gave a quick definition, kind of the elevator pitch for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. I didn't write down a definition for understanding. Just want to make sure I had a good summation of what it is. Will we say biblical understanding then is the what is revealed from the Holy Spirit? Or how would we best define that? Well, I think you're, you're getting close because I think what, what a better way to say it might be that to arrive at the understanding that I think the Bible is talking about, your option is, as far as I know, your only option is for that to be revealed to you through the Holy Spirit. And that's why I believe in 2 Timothy 2.7 he says it's a gift, understanding. And, and that's not our concept of understanding. Our concept of understanding basically comes closer to resolution. And that's, that's a problem for us because resolution is a really good way to stop walking by faith. So I would just suggest to you that our understanding is, is not an understanding of, of a scriptural understanding because it's... I don't think it's supposed to be. The Holy Spirit is where that comes from. And so we're, we're gaining knowledge. And the wisdom part, as far as I'm concerned, is what leads us to start thinking about, I don't see any way to, to get, get all this stuff packaged together on my own. And if, until I get to that point, I think I'm going to just run around in spiritual circles. So 
if you if you can if you can say in your heart, I believe that when I come to the Word of God, I'm asking to be led, filled, taught, whatever by the Holy Spirit, and from that, I hope to gain the understanding that He wants me to have of who He is, so that I can commune with Him, that I can have the relationship with Him, that once again He is designed and He has defined. Otherwise, I'll, I'll bring one, an idea of my own, or maybe two or three, of what that looks like. So without, like a, um, without trying to put a solid definition on it, then kind of what we were just talking about, it, understanding comes closer to the indwelling of God's Word than in the experience of being indwelled with the Spirit. A verse you might memorize and, and, and give some thought to is Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now listen to this. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's why you're having struggle putting, getting your arms around that. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's as we've talked about this whole weekend. The reason we get in the Bible is to know God. You know, and that's obviously we play a part in that, but ultimately he's the one that reveals himself to us in ways that only he chooses. But I think if you'd memorize that scripture and ponder on it, it might help you. I have a question for uh, Jerry, but first I'd like to make a comment on what Bill talked about uh, yesterday about is hell, is hell fair? Um, I thought it was incredibly insightful, Bill, to use the analogy of uh, the physician who has the power to heal you, but you refuse his healing because you hate him. Uh, and so whose fault is it if you refuse the healing from the one who has the power to do so, I, th I just because I've, I've, I've been asked that question several times by people I know who don't know the Lord and and want to use that as an excuse. Uh, I just thought that was very insightful. And regarding the fairness of hell, you said it was the destiny of those who uh, refuse to follow or obey the greatest commandment. Um, I got to re reflecting on that. I think you know if we're all honest, we're all we all struggle. Uh, we all struggle daily to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Uh, so what God impressed on me with regard to his hell fair is, hell yes. <laughs> hell yes it's fair. Uh, but we don't want fair. We, we want mercy. And I woke up this morning just thanking God that uh, his mercies are new every morning. So thank you for that. Uh, Jerry, uh, I believe the church is called to influence and impact the culture, uh, to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, from what you sh uh, shared yesterday, which was excellent, by the way, about Christendom being the, the fusion of the church and the culture, and thus being, in, as I interpreted, a literal form of godliness uh, with no real power to change the, the world. My question to you is this, what will it take in the last days for the true church, headed by Jesus, to not only attract men who are called by God 
but once again be the catalyst to bring uh, true change, to bring about the redemption of the culture. Robin, my sense is that an abs the absence of a revival by the Holy Spirit, it's all, everything else is hand-waving. It's just not going to happen. And so I, I would encourage every guy to pray daily for a revival. I hope God has got one more revival before he comes back. Because if he doesn't, There, there's a lot of people going to hell, including a lot of people who don't think they're going to hell. And I think, I think, Robin, it's important to, I can't remember who the, uh, some Harvard dude said something about the church being highly market conscious. And Say again? Harvey Knox. Thank you, John. Yeah, Harvey Knox. Church is highly market conscious. He said, never underestimate the church's capacity to conform to culture. It's very market oriented. By the way, I think he's, he's, a, he's a theologian from Princeton and Harvard. I think he's 94 and he's still alive, but that's a if you think about that a while, that, that will sober you. I live in the tension that you're talking about. Um, because I'm black and people expect me to want society to be better. You know, I don't want there to be slavery. I don't want there to be child pornography or um, sex trafficking. Uh, and so I'm conscious of those things. I support things that end that. But my goal is not the betterment of society. Paul did not better society. Jesus did not better society. He came to the sick and the lost because society is hell bound. And when Jesus comes back the second time, he is not coming back to reform society. He is coming back to utterly destroy it. Um, and uh, so we must, we must, Fight the fight that Jesus has called us to fight, and that is to save people, to share the gospel with them, to encourage people to walk with Christ. Now, do I try to make my society better by how I live and how I treat people? Yes, but that is not my, I expect society to go to hell in a handbasket. Just to piggyback on, on Bill's comments, that Christ did not come to earth to change the world. He came to earth to change people. Changing the world for Jesus Christ is a snap of the fingers. He can do that so easily. It's effortless. He can depose Satan. He can depose every evil person and set up his kingdom, and we're rocking and rolling. But changing people cost him his life. And for us to be changed costs us our lives. I had, I had a question before was what was one of the verses that, I think it was that first verse that Winston rattled off that he had under memory. 
But I, I wrote down another five of them, so I might be good there. What was that first verse, Winston? Second Corinthians 5, 3 and on. I mean, it's 3-5. 3-5. Got it. No problem. No problem. So after that comment, Bill, kind of tied into that talk I gave last night, society. My hope, and then I've got, I've been convicted now from Winston's talk. You know, there is some temporal hope. I get that. But as we see it crumbling, and if you're an able-bodied man, people approach you and they want you to get involved in that fight to try to reform society. But as Christians, when we sit in this room, you kind of realize that's not what Christ wants us to do. So how do you wrestle with that pull between people calling you to, you know, save the country or save your city or get on city council versus, man, my job is just to try to straighten my head out so I can try to save my brother? Doug, I think just we got to remind. I think one thing is to hang around like-minded brothers. That'll help us stay stay on focus. But we hear it all the time. But but I don't think we really grasp the uh, the depth of it. Is that the only thing that's going to last are people and God's word. Take a look at, on your own, take a look at 2 Peter 3. He says he's going to burn this whole thing up. And I think one of the things that, that uh, is difficult is that all of us being created in the image of God. And God is just. Therefore, all of us have a desire for justice. And I find nowhere in the Bible, in fact, I find a prohibiting to seek justice. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, I'm supposed to treat people justly, absolutely. But, boy, the world would be different if everyone would quit trying to, to obtain justice. <coughs> And so to get sucked into that is, is just a trap. And I would just go one step further. Just within the Christian community, we've got to learn to say no to good things. Jesus said no, no to more things, good things, than he ever said yes to. So we've got to decide what our purpose is, what our priorities are, what would God have, and then keep our eye, keep our eye on those because we'll have all kinds of people and particularly people that get things done. Then, boy, they're going to, you know, and naturally, and, and you can't fault them for that, but you've got to know who I am and what I'm about and then that'll give you a basis to say no when you need to say no. Uh, 
just to kind of add to what Winston's saying, I, uh, one of the brothers said, when, when I was talking about how do we move from the care concern portion over to the anxiety, worry, fear element, he said, it, what, why didn't you answer, to, why didn't you tell us what the answer was to the question? And, and I think it's because I was serious when I said, I think you want to think about that hard for yourself. But I'll just concede and give you a clue that based on what Winston just said, when you're in that position of anxiety and worrying and just rehashing over and over again, I think if you examine, you'll find three things are at play. One, you're seeking justice. Two, part of seeking justice is you think you're a victim. And three, part of being a victim is you think you're entitled. And those things will bury you in a hole. John, say that one more time, guys. I mean, it, it's of paramount importance. Say that, say that again, John. Well, it's, it's, it's a microcosm of the culture you see and you find yourself living in. Because, because seeking justice leads to the, you have to think that you're a victim. And oh, by the way, the Bible doesn't use that term. He says, if you're a slave, be a good one. And secondly, what's really causes that to get out of, get just totally out of control is it gives you a sense of entitlement. It's an interesting thing in Job, if you look carefully through some of his responses, one of the things, even though he was a blameless man, that surfaces is he keeps talking about, God, I just want an audience with you. I want to, I want to state my case. I want to do, that's a sense of entitlement. If you look at the history of the man of mankind, so much of the evil in the world has resulted from a desire to improve society. And it grows out of the belief from the enlightenment that man is it can be made perfect. And so you have to create an environment conducive to the perfectibility of men. So in China, it meant getting rid of the anti-revolutionists or professors um, because they had Western thought. I mean, we must understand that our desire for perfectibility is in opposition to Christ. And what we want is to be men of God. Um, so, was uh, was going to ask you guys about this? Has probably come up, but you know, you meet people who say, "Well, you know, in Micah six eight, it says um, to uh, do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God." So, you know, as Christians, aren't we then supposed to be doing that? Can you comment on that? Yes, that's one of the verses they'll throw at you. That you, there is a place for finding justice, but. Quote that verse again, Micah. What, what does he say? He's, um, he has told you from the beginning, from the beginning of eight. Yeah, just what you yeah. quoted a minute yeah. ago. 
um, he, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly yeah. with your God. Now, no, notice what he says. He says to do justice. He doesn't say seek justice. He says to do justice. Totally different. Yes, okay. I'm, tr- I'm supposed to treat people justly. But I better not seek justice. Don't seek justice. Oh, so that's the important, the to-do part is the important thing to look at. Well, that's what, that's what we're seeing today with all the different, different groups and so on. What are they doing? They're seeking justice. On and on and on. They're seeking justice. And as John pointed out, I'm a victim. And now I ought to have reparation, if I did pronounce that wrong. Thank you, reparations. Yeah. That's, that's entitlement. And what it does for the kids, it, it's just destructive for the kids because if they're raised with that attitude, now it, it puts a ceiling on what they can accomplish themselves because they're trying, they'll end up living out a, their image of themselves as a victim and entitlement, and it just breeds discontentment and anger and just destroys lives. Just destroys lives. Do justice, but don't seek it. I remember Walt Hendrickson saying very, in a pithy manner, just remember, God is in the people business. And so I'd always get distracted with some social justice thing or something like that. And I'm just reminded it, it's just about people. So another person said it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It doesn't make any difference. The ship's going down. There's a, just a little bit of time. And so with that little bit of time, what are we going to do? So we just have to talk to people, tell them to get a life jacket on, tell them where the boats are, how to get into the boat. And I think as we go later into time and as the clock is ticking down and as we see the stuff on TV in the Middle East, and more and more people are talking about, we may not even make it till. Valentine's Day or may not even make it to New Year's or, or even Christmas, there is such so little time, this concept of eminence, the return of Christ, this urgency that we must feel, with that in our mind, you don't think about reforming society or bringing justice. You got to grab the guy that will listen to you and tell them how he could have a savior, he could have the cross, can remove his sins, so he can have eternal life. That's the only business we're in. We're in the people business, that's it. And, and uh, there's no time for, for anything else. You cannot fix the ship, the ship's going down. So we have to get people into the boats. Andrew, you got your Bible there? Go to James, chapter 1. 
last two verses. and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world okay so he gives you three tests of the legitimacy of your quote religion what are they Bridling one's tongue. Um, visiting orphans and widows. Keeping oneself unstained from the world. Okay. Why is it that Christian ju social justice warriors take the visiting of widows and orphans and interpret it very broadly, but say that we must, that is what we must do but they never talk about the other two. Why is that? Um, um, how they view the importance of obeying God's commands. So in an affluent society, which of those three things is the easiest to do? Visiting. Orphans and widows? Agreed. What does that tell you? We want to take the easy path. Of course we do. And let me suggest, Andrew, that social justice, number one, is an oxymoron. It is ridiculous to say that based on this man's race or ethnicity, he should be treated one way, and based on his race and ethnicity, this man should be treated another way. As if the whole group is the issue before God. The issue before God is individuals. So when we think in these racial, ethnic, and gender terms, we're thinking contrary to, to God, number one. Number two, I would suggest for your consideration that social justice is not about love for the poor, although most of the people that I know who, cha who, who champion that are people of good faith and good intentions. But I would argue that the real motive behind social justice is control. It is about wealth redistribution so that you can be controlled. If you go back to the Micah passage that you read originally and it said do justice and it said how are we to walk before God? Humbly. Go to every social justice movement. The last thing you will ever see is humility. What you will observe is the opposite. They are self-righteous, they are bitterly angry, and they are, and they are condemning. 
they are right and everyone else is what? Wrong. That is not walking humbly before God. Uh, this uh, question is for my brother Bill. I love you. This is a very simple question for you. Um, in regards to hell, when an unbeliever passed away, do they go to hell or do they go to Hades? And I don't know how, because I always have my understanding that they will go to Hades first, and when judgment comes, then they will go to hell for, eternal, for, for eternity. Can you just clarify and expand on Hades and, and hell? I can answer that question, but I must do so in Greek <laughs> to make sure that you don't understand anything that I am saying. All I can do is give you uh, what I understand. The Jewish people believed in Sheol, which had two compartments, a compartment where good people go who were in Christ and a place where uh, people who weren't in Christ go. And it was a bad place. And uh, that when Christ was crucified and rose from the grave, he led captivity captive. That the people in Sheol who died in him get to be with him. So the people in bad Sheol right now, there has been no great white throne judgment yet. But they, they are living the life that ha they have aspired to, a life without Christ. So they are experiencing a hellish existence because Christ is not there. The judgment will come, and it will be evaluative and retrib retributive. And, and they are not going to agree with their judgment, but they are nonetheless going to see that it is right and correct. Will they agree? No, they're going to curse God. But believers will see and praise God. So a person dies now, they don't just go to sleep. Right now, because we are this side of the cross, we are with Christ. Unbelievers are apart from Christ. Apart from Christ is only suffering. agree with everything Bill said and just would add that in Revelation 20 you find death Hades and Satan thrown into the lake of fire and so the, the concept when we talk about hell a biblically more accurate term is the lake of fire hell as Bill points out is the abode of the dead but their ultimate fate for the unbeliever is the lake of fire I had, a, I had a question for Jerry, but Winston kind of derailed me briefly. Winston, if you could, uh, I'm a little unclear on what Jesus said no to that was good. I'm not tracking on that. You said Jesus said no to good things, and I'm not tracking with what, you're, what you meant. Oh, well, many times they'd say, well, stay, stay longer. Oh, okay. Or they would say, uh, come over here. 
and uh, he knew exactly where he, I mean, they tried to distract him from heading toward Jerusalem, and, uh, yeah, okay. you know, he took a pass. Okay. Um, this is for Jerry. Um, so I've heard it asserted that, you know, when Paul took a left turn instead of right, and he went to Europe, and as we've observed over the two millennia that we've seen the gospel advance westward, and now it's circumnavigated, and maybe that's an indicator that the gospel has been preached to every nation, and maybe that's the encouraging thing that we are at the end times. Would you agree with that? or do you? I, I, I do. I think it's, it's speculative. I, the Bible doesn't say that. But when you, when you see this westward trend in the Bible, and then you look at history, and you see it going through Europe to UK to the United States, in my opinion, the Holy Spirit left the West Coast some time ago, and he's in China, uh, he's in India, he's in the Middle East, and he ends up where he started, in Jerusalem. Uh, one question I would ask for all of you is, uh, as we think about the benefit of a band of brothers in holding each other accountable, and also the, the commandment we have to take to be witnesses in J Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost Samaria, the uttermost part of the world, the, the Great Commission, how do we balance the time in the world as we go to minister with the time with other believers where we're uh, edified and equipped to go back out into the world. So 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. So we're going to be involved with bad company. So how do we, where, where biblically do we, do we get uh, how to how to balance those two things? There is no balance. Thank you. There is no balance. <laughs> if you're with a bad company, be obnoxious with the gospel, and you will they will not want to be your friend anymore. <laughs> if you're with bad company, constantly be obnoxious about the gospel. That's your signal. Are you going to be spreading the gospel with good company? You've got to be with bad company so you have an audience. And then uh, there's no balance. It's just one thing that's on your mind. I mean, just listening to Dan Russell this morning, he's just always got the gospel on his mind. He's, whether it's guys coming to cut his trees or digging up his sewer or repairing this, God is just breaking his house down so, so, he can, so he gets a chance to witness to all these workers. If he would quit, I think his house would be okay. It is, uh, it is a Western thought um, that we should seek balance in our lives. I don't know that I've ever had balance in my life. Uh, what we have, so stop thinking of balance. What, what we have, 
of, of priorities. And you have to manage, you have to define your priorities and manage them and ma manage them with the help of a godly spouse and godly men. So they, you know, I go away for a weekend. That's not convenient for my wife, you know. Um, and and uh, so, again, man define your priorities, manage them, make sure that they are Christ-focused, and have your wife, your friend, say, how am I doing? Mike, as you know, Ephesians 2.10 says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To Bill's point, you cannot, you cannot make those decisions without knowing why you're here. A man has to address the question of purpose. God, I mean, look, look at this room. We are all different guys. We're, we're so different. We're united by Jesus so different otherwise. He made us different for a reason. The obsession in your life is what is that reason? Why am I here, God? I want, the only thing that's going to last is the works of God. You enter the works of God, you enter the rest of God when you start doing those good works that he prepared beforehand for you. Make it your obsession. That's what I want, Jesus. And I won't stop until you put me there. That's what I want. Don't have any preconceived notions with God. To one man, he's going to say, be still and know that I am God. And to the brother sitting right next to you, he's going to say, Get up, leave Jerusalem, go out into, he's going to say it differently. And he's going to say it at different times in your, of your life. Just be open to what God is telling you to do today. In the spirit of what the brothers are talking about now, working the works of what was prepared for you beforehand. I want to just reference what one of the brothers said shortly ago, which was being distracted by joining civic organizations or other groups that might take you away from the Word of God. And as I've learned from many of the brothers who are on the, the panel today, as long as a man's motives are orientated towards evangelism and discipleship, it may very well be that God's opening up another ministry marketplace for you. We don't always have to operate within the business community, but our business influence can bring us into organizations where we get a platform. When I lived in Colorado Springs and was in ministry with several of the brothers on the podium, I had some interest, business interest in Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, ministry developed out of that in that region. But the more important thing I think that developed was my neighbor next door, who had moved in a few months prior to that, when he found out I was in Cape Town from my wife, uh, he almost like the minute I got back, 
he couldn't get over to my house quickly enough to invite me to join something called the World Affairs Council. He was the president of the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council to join the board. And uh, the spirit just prompted me, and I asked him a few more questions and then joined. And I was on that board probably for three or four years and eventually became president. And it was a prominent group of 300 citizens who were well off in Colorado Springs who met at the Broadmoor once a month and et cetera, et cetera. But at the time, I was the ticket sales coordinator for the leadership prayer breakfast in Colorado Springs and was very active uh, with uh, some of the brothers up there in doing E squared in Colorado Springs. And several of the board members got to go to the prayer breakfast and accepted Christ. And all the while I was there, I knew that's what I was doing. I was seed planting. I was lifestyle evangelism. I was using my gifts and talents, the front of the room stuff and, and building relationships, knowing that that's what I was up to. And I believe I was in the will of God doing that. Was it a distraction? Yes. I was a very busy person at the time, but I, I felt the touch of the Holy Spirit to move me to do that. So I would encourage you to pray about that. It, it may not be your experience, what was mine, but it could be. And so, you know, it's, God does beautiful things sometimes with a surrendered, prayerfully considering E squared heart and mind. Let me uh, make a comment on that. On the other side, I called you, Winston, and I might ask you to maybe comment on it, but a guy asked me to be on the board of this Engage to Go ministry, and they're a ministry to the rave concerts. And um, Winston brought great clarity, as, and, I, and I see what they're doing. It's amazing. It's amazing. But, Winston, if you comment on capacity and um, as we get older, because, you know, and you mentioned I have a very narrow, a very narrow field of focus right now, and I was getting distracted when this guy called me, and, I mean, he, you know, you know what they say when they want you on their board. I think that uh, as you as you get older and uh, in our 20s we begin to lose capacity but we don't know it and so we just gun our way through it when we hit a, in in our 40s somewhere uh, then we become aware uh, of uh, diminishing capacity and it uh, for some men they make some crazy decisions of it's it's when mortality begins to become a reality and uh, some men trade their 40 40 year old wife in for a 20 year old and do stupid things and uh, but as we move along uh, one of the way, one of the things that becomes more and more 
an issue is not only our time, but our capacity. And the older you get, the more that becomes an issue, and the more it, it uh, you realize it. And so, and one of the things that, that happens as you get older is we've all planned, we're all planners to some way, in some way, but we generally plan off of kind of what's happened in our past. Like in business, the last quarter, you start, well, what do we want to do next year? And what have we done? What did we do last year? And how did we do it? And what can we do to do better or do more or so on? And we assume, we assume next year we're going to have the same capacity we had last year. Well, as you get older, that's not true. So it really throws you into having to be more cautious about where you're going to commit your time because you have gradually you have less and less capacity. And so like at my age, uh, capacity is a, is a big, big component of what I commit to because I'm, at my age, I've got, you know, comparatively to what I used to have, just uh, it's just no comparison. So, but what it, there's a good thing in that, and I think uh, it's all part of God's plan of getting older. There's a, it's all part of His plan, and if we look at aging from the standpoint of it's from the hand of God and for our good to accomplish what He wants to accomplish in our life. And that is, he wants total surrender. And none of us get to total surrender. We're still holding on to things. Some of them we may not even realize. But what happens, God, <laughs> he just gradually takes our capacity away until, until we have to surrender. We don't have any other choice. And, and that's exactly what happens to us. So... If we see life that way, then we see getting older and, and losing our capacity and so on. We see it from the hand of God and a blessing. And if we're really trying to stay focused and finish well, what happens is your relationship, you begin to know Him better. And so the relationship becomes sweeter and sweeter. And the psalmist in 73 says, Whom do I have in heaven but thee? And I desire nothing here on the earth. And then a few verses later he says, As for me, grab this, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. See, the psalmist had gotten a taste of intimacy with Christ and nothing else satisfied. And that's where God is trying to take all of us if we'll just let him. Before you get another question, my mind engaged a little earlier and if you want to see that 
quote that you looked that up that Jerry's asking about. It's not Harvey Knox, it's Harvey Cox. Why don't we make this the last, uh, the last question? And, um, and then I have a, just one, one or two little announcements to make and we can start to wrap up. So um, my question was basically, uh, Mr. McCurin, when you were talking about um, like listening to God's voice, you know, um, about like how you do the decisions by how you hear God's voice. So my question is simply like with, you know, the Bible talks about like the heart, which is like really um, deceptive and stuff. And um, also like I feel like it's really hard to not listen to like the world's influences and stuff. So like... How do you hear God's voice through all of those things? How do you decipher what it is God wants you to do, like tangibly? I'm pause. It's a wonderful question. And it's one that I think about all the time. Number one, you have to spend time with him. You have to spend time with him. Second, you have to be in his word. Because Jesus is the living word of God. When you read the written word of God, you, you come inwardly in your spirit to know the voice of God through his word. Um, remember that we walk, God is never going to contradict his word. Let me give you a facetious example to make a point. The voice says to you, have an affair. I don't care what anybody tells you that that is the word of God. It is a lie. God is not speaking to you. All right. Now, but you will know as you walk with God whether God is speaking to you. And then you test it. You go to godly men. You say, I think, I, and, never, and never say, God told me to do X, because who wants to argue with God? You're foreclosing discussion. You say, I think God is telling me X. What do you think? And you weigh it with, with men, and you weigh it before God. You say, God, I think you're telling me this, but I could be wrong. Make it clear. <clears throat> Where you are in life, Johan, it's easy. Your dad is your head. And you pray for him. God, speak to, through my dad. Give him your best for me. If I was smart, I would have said that. <laughs> What, what Jerry just said is so profound, because what he's referring to is what? The authority that God has set forth in Scripture. And what is society doing now? It is rejecting the authority that God puts in Scripture. And so young people today, who is the last person they want to listen to? Their parents. And, so, and society is encouraging young people don't listen to your parents. 
listen to the state. And that's what communism, they don't want you to listen to your parents. Communism, socialism, uh, they want you to listen to the state or they want you to listen to a political party here. You listen to, and you pray, like you say, pray for God. Oh, what a great word. Any, uh, yeah, John? Oh. No, any, I was going to say, any parting comments from you guys at all that uh, came to mind? Andy, did you have anything you wanted to ask, guys? Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> while they're up there and it's quiet, um, our, our board would ask you please to tear out the last page from your notebook and please fill out that evaluation. It's very important. Take... Just take a few minutes and fill that out. Then put them in that box back there uh, by the 